Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. Today we want to look at really what is a dark side of culture, and that is the whole topic of human trafficking. And I want to get into this by telling a story. It's the story of a little girl who's three years old, and she's named Eve, and she's growing up in Thailand. And Eve's family is very, very poor. In fact, they're so poor that they take Eve to the city. They take her to a district that is known for its brothels. And they dress three-year-old little Eve provocatively, and they have her begin to dance in the street, which begins to attract a crowd, and from that crowd they extract money. And they make her keep this up until she's utterly exhausted, and the next morning they wake her up again to do the exact same thing. And the way they keep her at the task is to put drugs into her juice so that she can continue to perform. And this goes on for some three years. And uh, little Eve uh, is weary. Uh, She's drug addicted. She's uh, miserable. She's exhausted. But she has no choice because she's earning a very handsome income for her family. And to make matters worse, she becomes something of an internet sensation uh, on on, uh, video and so forth. It's about that time that a group named A21 Uh, discovers Eve, her pupils are dilated, she's exhausted, she's obviously been abused. And they contact the police and the police intervene in a raid and they take Eve and they they put her with A21 and A21 uh, gets her to safety. And today Eve is a little seven-year-old little girl who is uh, in counseling and getting medical treatment. But she goes to school, which she loves, and she particularly loves gymnastics. And all of that is in Eve's life uh, due to the grace of God, and particularly as manifest through a group called A21. This morning, uh, we have at the podcast Christine Kane, and Christine and her husband Nick, some nine years ago, founded this organization called the A21 Campaign. you have described yourselves in A21 as uh, uh, abolitionists uh, with a mission to end slavery. Let me ask you a rhetorical question, Christine. Uh, thanks to William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, uh, uh, slavery was ended in England in uh, 1833 and here in the United States, the Emancipation Proclamation in uh, 1863. So why do we need new abolitionists? We definitely need new. Well, thank you firstly for having me on the You're program. Welcome. Thanks for being and with us. And I love it. You know, A21 has an audacious goal. That's right to abolish slavery everywhere forever. And um, I think we threw in the word forever as well because of the question you just asked me. Hang on a minute. Look what William Wilberforce had done hmm. in England. Look at the Emancipation Proclamation Act in North America. And yet there are more slaves on the earth today than ever before in the history of humanity. Um, and it, it's the way we've defined slavery uh, looks different in different parts of the world now as well. I think in um, the story that you just explained about Eve, the horrific story, uh, is 
Um, it's not like perhaps some of the slavery where we were putting African slaves on boats and, you know, they were coming across the ocean what does and it then look being like sold. Then? Well, it can look at anything from Eve to there is still in Bulgaria. Uh, we have recently come into our care a young woman who was sold. Really, it was like a stock market. There was uh, some of our workers were there. There were hundreds of men there and traffickers putting one woman up after the other and mm. selling her 300 euros, 400 euros. So at Libya, if you're looking at the news right now, you're seeing men are being sold um, for three or 400 US dollars. And so you go, I can't actually believe I'm watching this all over again. But there's that kind of slavery. A lot of the young women we work with in Eastern Europe have been taken from rural villages, promised jobs in, say, Greece, where we have one of our um, one of our aftercare centres, and it's called Organised Crime Bill because it's very organised. And so they will set up a set up a shelf company in Greece, and so the girls then get a permit to come into Greece to get a job. Except the organisation does not really exist. So when they come across the border, the traffickers often take them, rape them, sell them into brothels. Um, prosecuting a lot of those cases poses a increased problem because they've gotten to prove that you were forced to come over when you actually got a permit you, you to come over for yes for a job and you right. came i mean it is just so complex there's a lot of com complexities involved with prosecuting that in many countries that we work um, human trafficking is not a crime. You can't prosecute something that's not a crime. You can't convict oh. someone with something. So we, um, in a lot of places that we go, we put lawyers in first to begin to change laws in order to make it a crime so that we can actually help to represent the victims. We are working with a, a boy in Greece now. He was he came out of Syria, was trafficked through Turkey, sold for sex for three years from the ages of 15 to 18. Um, and he miraculously escaped. Two weeks ago, he's come into our care now and and we're putting him through. So we have, um, here's one in, um, they were getting girls pregnant in brothels in Greece, taking them up to northern Bulgaria in what they call infant farms, forcing the girls to have those babies and then s selling those newborn infants into pedophile rings mm. and then taking the organs of the girls and selling them on black market. So trafficking has many, many different faces. faces. So it's not all just sexual exploitation. It's also exploitation of labor. Labor is the major, major, and, um, of course, organ trafficking. It's it's horrific um, when it looks at, you know, for a young woman who's sexually exploited, she's worth about 250,000 euros to a trafficker per annum. And um, before, in many cases, then they will sell off their organs once they uh, can't sell them for sex anymore. It's like cattle. And one of our... Uh, one of the traffickers that was being convicted in Greece the, in, in the Supreme Court, the judge asked him, why do you traffic young women? I mean, she was a teenager. And he said, because the fines for trafficking people are far less than trafficking armaments or drugs. And with them, you can do what you want. You just kick them and they'll do what you want them to do. Mm. So there's the dehumanization of the person, which Clearly. really is the only way you can do that. Dehumanization is the operative word. Well, I want to come back to dehumanization, but I want to roll the clock back a little bit. First of all, tell me tell me about yourself and, and where were you born? Uh, what, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your story. I was uh, born in Australia. You know, uh, Melbourne, Australia has got the second largest Greek population I outside I thought I noticed an accent. <laughs> this is how the convicts speak the Queen's English. Well, maybe, so. <laughs> maybe you noticed my accent. Well, you well, yes, I noticed yours because, see, you're through the tea out in Boston and we <laughs> yes. kind of took, we, we carry the Commonwealth on. That's us. Okay. Um, I'm laughing because now you have a prince that's marrying an American. Yes. So we are all far 
far more related than we'd like to think. But anyway, so I was born in Australia, but, um, you know, the daughter of Greek immigrants. My parents came from Alexandria, Egypt. And so there was a mass um, when all the Greek Orthodox Christians were being persecuted in Izmir, Turkey. My grandparents fled from there through Greece into Alexandria. Then when King Farouk got overthrown, my parents had to flee from Alexandria to Australia. And um, so kind of so you're a refugee oh, as very much, much as so all the way from Izmir through to Alexandria to Australia and now um, we're living in America so I'm applying for citizenship now so I have that immigrant journey all the way around Absolutely. the world Absolutely. and I found out at 33 quite shockingly um, not enough time to go into the detail here but I found out that I was adopted in fact I'm one of there was three siblings my older brother George my younger brother Andrew I was in the middle Christine hmm. uh, right there in the middle and we found out that my brother was adopted from one set of parents. I was adopted from another set of parents, and my younger brother is the only biological child. But we thought we all were biological children, so it's quite shocking at 33 to find out you're not who you thought you were. Sure. And um, I was the daughter. All I know from the legal papers is that my mother was a um, an immigrant woman, single woman, lived in immigrant housing, who got pregnant to a 55-year-old married man um, and left me at the hospital. And so there were forced adoptions back in, the Australia, in Australia in the 60s. Mm. And so um, that's how I ended up in my home. You had to adopt the same nationality, same religion. So there was not many Greek people looking for um, babies and then Greek Orthodox as well on top of all of that. So that's kind of how I, work, I ended up in my home. Found that out at 33. And, um, and from the time I was very young until my teenage years, I'd also experienced uh, sexual abuse at the hands of oh several gosh. different men. So in many ways, you know, I was very broken. Uh, my story uh, could be the story of any one of our traffic victims. The yes. difference was I was born in Australia where there was a rule of law. So mm-hmm. there was an adoption system set up. But, you know, we rescue kids that have been taken from orphanages in Romania, Albania, Bulgaria. I could have been. I am. There's one degree of separation. Oh, very much so. And my birth certificate doesn't have a name. It's number two five zero eight of nineteen sixty six. That's the deal. And so I go for me when people throw out numbers like forty million slaves. Well, forty million. If I said to you number two five zero eight, you wouldn't even think about it. Um, But when I say that's Christine Kane, it changes everything Mm -hmm. because numbers are so dehumanizing and desensitizing. And so, I think in many cases we can ignore suffering when it's nameless and faceless but to god nobody is nameless nobody is faceless everyone is created with his image um, on the inside of them and so we're trying to put a human face on you know when i first started talking about uh slavery 10 years ago not many people were talking about it in the church you know um and then I remember some people would say things to me, especially when it came to sex trafficking. Well, Christine, are you trying to tell me that these girls are not asking for it? Are these women are not at... It was stunning to me. Mm-hmm. I thought, I have a... Well, now I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Never once did either of my daughters in their growing up years come to me and say, Mummy, I'd love to be a prostitute. Right. Uh, you know, that, right. It, it was, it's Little never girls been... Little don't grow up uh, yeah. wanting that. <laughs> never. So that's what I think, like, no, no, nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. And um, when you work really within it when you're prosecuting traffickers and you're seeing uh, especially there's a lot of mafia in in europe um, and south africa and asia where we work involved we work extensively in in um, we've had some miracles in Thailand. We work with the Thai internet, internet crimes against children, um, the Thai Royal Police, Homeland Security and FBI from here and have set up in Pattaya, which is the pedophile capital of the world, a child advocacy centre. But some of the things that we've been exposed to there, I mean, for people that don't believe evil exists, just need to spend one minute 
in, in that child advocacy centre and go the depravity of humanity of what people are able to do. We have a child in our care that is 18 months old right now with a broken pelvis mm. and you don't even want to know what, you know, the oh. levels of depravity of what people uh, will go to and the child, porn, what, what babies and like Eve, um, the the child pornography and internet porn that these children are drugged and abused and then that is sold on the internet. It's just incomprehensible where we've reached as a society. Well, yes, we don't want to dehumanize people with numbers, but but in terms of numbers, I mean, my understanding is this is a growing problem in the world. And Certainly, because the way we're measuring it is different. So when I started, it was 27 million. You could easily lose heart and go, Christine, now it's 40 million. The yeah, UN has just right. released, you know, latest figures. But we're measuring it more effectively now. And I think children like Eve are being included in those numbers. There was a day they wouldn't have been. It would have been, well, that's just that culture. You know, uh, that's just child brides mm -hmm. at 8, 9, 10 years old, whereas now we're going, no. No, that's not just um, a cultural thing to use a, a child yeah. at, um, in that way. We, we So I think the way we measure what is trafficking has changed very much. So You, you mentioned culture, and I'm, I'm sure that different cultures around the world do view this differently. My yes. wife for a while uh, has been working with a, a group that's uh, working with women who are sexually trafficked in a Southeast Asia yes. country. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it was it was a new thought that I came by through that work that that this was not a moral issue this was an economic issue that yes. these women would leave their families and and go into prostitution in order to send money back home not only so their families could live but more importantly their elders could live yes and that it was not based on you know guilt and a moral thing it was a shame thing the shame would not be the sex the shame would be not providing for your Parents. Absolutely. And it's it's so hard. Uh, a lot of what we do is in our prevention and awareness programs is we have a, a school curriculum. So it's here in the US, but it's through Asia and um, through Europe. And I mean, in every country we're in, we work with the education department to make the curriculum you know, pertinent to that country. But the program, uh, the essence of it is still the same. It's called Bodies Are Not Commodities. Mm. And it's we have to uh, work right from kindergarten because you're talking about something that's woven into the very fabric of society yeah. uh, you've got those cases in southeast asia in countries like greece where prostitution is legal a rite of passage so when a young boy and i'm greek but you know by heritage right. so when a, a boy turns 13 it's highly common that his grandmother as his rite of passage into manhood is to take him to a prostitute. Mm. And it's almost like incomprehensible for us to go, you know, a 13-year-old mm. boy would be taken by his grandmother and she would pay for him. Now, this is a supply and demand issue right. because then we think good Greek girls wouldn't want to do that. Do you want me to help me to understand why Uzbekistan girls would or why Romanian girls could yeah, or why? Right, right. But then what you've done is you've objectified people, you've othered people. And so then you what you have then is a lot of race issues, a lot of um, kind of, you know, it is amazing to me the racism that is inherent all around the world. It's yes. like, well, they're just Serbians or they're just, I, I mean, right. I hear this. Yes. At, I'm on the ground. I'm going, you're kidding me. Are, the, are they not human beings? Do yes. you think these girls? And it's almost like I talk to rational people that just look at me and go, well, that's just what they do. That's just what Roma gypsies do. We're working with a Bulgarian. It's a, the new normal. It's the new normal. And I'm like, that's not just what anybody does. But if you, the objectification happens at every level for, for the victim that's been trafficked. Um, but also just the way we look at society. We go, these people are less than. This is what they, whether it's the caste system in certain societies or whether it's a, 
an unsaid caste system that exists everywhere. My nation is better than your nation. My culture is better than your culture. We work with this in the former sort of Eastern European bloc all the time. And I grew up like that, you know, um, we were outcasts in Australia being Greek, but, you know, the Greeks and Turks and um, Macedonians have had, had conflict. And I thought, this is not an issue that is just for one country. It's everywhere it's around the world. Yeah, it's global. So at what point did you and Nick say, we need to start an organization? And, yeah. and how did the name A21, A21 campaign come my about? Most asked question. Well, um, I was traveling to speak at a women's conference in Thessaloniki, uh, Greece. And so, of course, I have relatives throughout right. Greece, and say, I, Greek is my first language. It's like so going home. It is in many ways. And um, but when I stopped um, to get my bags at baggage claim, there were these posters of women and children, many posters, and there was a disproportionate amount, like dozens. And what had happened at that time? About a decade ago, a young girl called Madeline was taken in Portugal, if people might remember. Her parents were having dinner, and she was in a room with a couple of her siblings, and when they went home, she wasn't there. Well, Interpol was on high alert, so every airport you went to, her poster was up everywhere, but so were posters of other missing children. Now, I had looked at posters like this in other countries. I've done mission work for years, so in and out of Kiev, Poland, you mm -hmm. know, and it's amazing how you can look and look away yeah. Um, and look and overlook. But for yeah. some reason, I had just had my second child. I was 40. Mm. And there was, as I was looking at these posters, there was a little girl and her name was Sophia, which was the name of my daughter that I had just birthed. And for some reason, whether it was maternal hormones, I just had a baby, I just... Or the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit. That, that's exactly who it was. Um, I looked, but all of a sudden, in, in an instant, this is what I call it, I call it my moment from, I went from looking to seeing. Mm -hmm. I didn't just look at these missing children, and I could read it now because, of course, it's Greek, it says missing, 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 and I'm thinking, there's a lot of missing children and a lot of missing women. And I went from looking at a missing child to seeing who could have been my child. Mm -hmm. And when you see, you can't unsee. Mm -hmm. And I, I just started weeping. I could not look away. And um, almost like, you know, in, in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house, and he mm -hmm. says to him, Simon, do you see yes. this woman? Yes. And um, it was like, that's what happened. For It's like, I saw. She'd been there all the time. And I, I was no longer objectifying, just going, they're missing kids. They're, I saw. And I could not unsee. And I, I would say... Uh, spiritually, that was the moment A21 was birthed because, I mean, I, I, I still didn't know anything. I, wa I walked out crying, um, called my friend who was the director of UNICEF in Copenhagen, and then from there began to find out that these were the alleged victims of human trafficking. And that was the moment when, most, like most people on the, in the world, I went, this does not still happen today. Slavery ended. I mean, I've got an economic history degree, William <laughs> Wilberforce. I mean, I was, right, you know, yes, right. and it's like, no, no, no. And that's when my eyes were opened up to the issue. And so we were thinking of a name. And I'd like to say it was something spiritual. It really wasn't. It was we had to register something. I had, And I was in Europe and my PA was in Australia. And, she, and I just in a, she goes, what are we going to call it? I go, I don't know. We just have to abolish injustice in the 21st century. That's what out of that. It was like, oh, A21. That's literally how it came apart. And that's it's stuck and it is really stuck um, in an amazing way. And I didn't realize actually having a name that was just like that has given us great access to governments and law enforcement because it's um, 
non-threatening, just A21, and um, very easy to remember. And how it was sort of sealed for me was I came out of the gate at Frankfurt Airport and I was going to catch my aeroplane from Frankfurt to Thessaloniki And um, as I was having my conversation. And I turned the corner and my plane was leaving from gate A21. And it was like, you know what, when you're looking for confirmation, you'll take anything. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, let me ask this question. Mm. I want to hear later about some of the You've got several layers that you have to work with to free someone from trafficking. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me, based on what you're saying, that there's a there's a different angle on this, that what one of your most difficult and seemingly impossible tasks is getting people to see. Yes. How do you do that? Yeah, thank God for prayer and the Holy Spirit. A lot of that so is – It's a spiritual issue. I, I believe that totally. It's the only way it could exist in the uh, – the way that it exists, undergirding it all. Um, and, you know, the enemy has blinded mm-hmm. the eyes of people. You couldn't, if you saw people as people, you couldn't do this right. to people. And, uh, you know, it is interesting to me, the only thing that God created in his image were us human beings. Yes. And I just remember, even as I was trying to talk about it in churches, and I'm thinking, why are people resistant to this? Uh, it is an interesting thought that. On our watch, it will not be our legacy that human trafficking flourished on the earth the most during our tenure as the church. I mean, imagine when we stand before God and go, wow, that's how ineffective we were as the church. The only thing created in your image is humanity. And more than the trafficking of armaments and drugs, more frequent is the trafficking of human beings. There's something fundamentally wrong with that on every level, and perhaps it shows you the inherent blindness and deception and darkness in the world today. Absolutely. I wonder if uh, with the increasing technology and use of machines in our world, they were, the original promise was we'll have all these wonderful machines and that'll free humans up to do human things. And instead, it would appear that having all these machines is beginning to make humans more machine-like. Very much so, because you can objectify, and that's how you dehumanize people. They think that I'm just watching a computer screen. And see, a lot of people don't want this stuff dealt with even in the Christian sector because it exposes, and you have to deal with your own sin and what's happening in darkness. Because I say to people, if you want to partner with A21, here's a great way to partner. Turn your computer off and stop looking at porn. We would help to eradicate the demand for a lot of this almost overnight hmm. because it's a supply. It's an economic issue above everything. And you just, I can feel the tension in the room change oftentimes oh, yeah. because it's like we could stop this even more than you giving me money. Turn your computer off. Yeah. So when we when we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, I I want to hear a little bit more about the turning your computer off. Um, I also want to want to talk a little bit more about the image of God and some of the theological dimensions of this thing, mm-hmm. and and frankly the whole sort of spiritual and spiritual warfare side of this thing. Yes, as well as to hear about some of the, as I said, the layers that you have to go through. There's a whole process of. It's not just sort of taking somebody out of that situation. There's a whole healing process that takes place. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So you're you're doing this out of out of your obedience uh, to Christ, basically, as a Christ Ab- follower. Absolutely. And you know, I believe we've all got God's got a plan and a purpose for, for all of us. And yes. oftentimes, many of us think, especially if we have a broken past like mine, a fragmented past, that, that God cannot use us. And I think if we really believe Romans eight twenty eight that God is going to work all things, even all the bad things, together for mm. our good and for his glory i can see the broken fragments of my life um and and that jesus not only rescued me but now he's using me to rescue others and fulfill uh luke four eighteen. a lot of people perhaps with my kind of past abuse and abandonment and uh, brokenness would think well that i'm disqualified you know i'm disqualified from and i'm thinking it's the broken pieces of my past that god has woven together for his glory and um you know what it's like when I sit in our transition homes with girls and go, let me tell you my story. And the same God that rescued me and healed me and restored me, he can do it for you. It gives uh, the victims of trafficking, both men and women, because we you know, we have many, many men, um, both rescued, especially men out of forced labor, but many out of sex trafficking as well, especially young boys. Mm, um, sure. And for, for me to be able with conviction to look at their eyes and say the same spirit that has helped set me free and brought healing to my inner man um, can do it for you. There's there's a there's a strength that comes with that that I really really believe this stuff. I really believe that no matter how bad their story has been, Jesus does redeem. Jesus can heal and restore. And Luke four eighteen outside of him, I don't know what hope there is. But mm. Luke four eighteen, if more of us actually really believed it, uh, we would have a revival on the earth because people are hungry for that truth. Oh, absolutely. Worldwide. Worldwide. You talk a lot about uh, people, and particularly women, who live in shame. In fact, you have a book that you Mm -hmm. came out with last year called Unashamed, Drop the Baggage, Pick Up Your Freedom, Fulfill Your Destiny. Now, you know, some people could read that and say, oh, drop the baggage, fulfill your freedom, fulfill your destiny. That's another self-help book. Oh, yeah. You're not have, talking about self-help. Oh, I'm not talking about self-help. Talk I'm talking about God's about, help. <laughs> yes. Talk to us about women that live in shame and, 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 and being freed from that shame. Yeah, I think it's massive, and I think it's certainly men and women. Um, in the Shame is nothing new. Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were naked, and there's only one thing that Scripture says that they didn't know. Mm. They knew no shame, or they were naked and unashamed, depending on what version you read. Yeah. And I thought, how interesting that the last verse in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, that God wants us to know, I created you not to know one thing, and that one thing is shame. shame. So if you were the enemy, what's the one thing you would want to put on humanity? Absolutely. Because you would unravel them because it's the one thing God created them to never know. So that's where we come in, right through in Genesis 3. That's where shame comes into the garden. And it always starts with the question, did God really say? If you don't know what God said, you're going to believe what the enemy says every time. So um, the enemy wants to stop the word of God going forth so people don't know what God has said or 
He'll get people to twist what God has said so people will believe the lie of the enemy. And then God comes into the garden. He says, where are you? So the first thing, first conversation, God and man is, I was naked and afraid, and so I hid. So, wow. na- you know, shame, fear, and hiding in the first conversation between Adam and God. It's been there ever since. And then God's like, "Who told you? Who told you that you were?" You didn't naked? get that from me. Yeah, I didn't. And so I feel like um, it's nothing new. It started at the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. and it is still the modus operandi of the enemy. That conversation still goes. Still on. goes in people's heads every day. Yeah. And so for me, um, I didn't know what God said, so I believed what my abusers had told me. I believed what uh, I believed the lie of even my whole origin for so long. You know, there was there, but so I had to replace. That's why for me, the Word of God, it's not. Uh, just a cute thing. You've got to memorize the scripture. It, it is life and death. I There was, you know, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I had to literally replace the thoughts that I had that I'm unworthy, uh, you know, that I'm used goods, that God could never use me. Um, all the fundamental lies that have been sown in my head for decades. I had to renew my mind with the word of God. So replace, So it literally, it's kind of like uh, formed new patterns of thinking in my, in my brain. So when I understood what God said about me and who God said I was and what God said I could do according to his word, it changed everything. Something shifted. It changed everything. And that to me, whether it comes to our victims or the perpetrators of the crime, s- there's only one way for that to change. It's yeah. the word of God. So let's go back to... Uh, the story I told at the very beginning of Eve or someone like her, because you told several stories like that. So you you find this person that's being trafficked, and what's the process then that you take them through? Yeah, I mean, and again, there's a unique process. Because there's for, many pieces to it. Uh, very, it's it. very complex, and we're very holistic in our yeah. um, care. And of course, we care for everyone, body, soul, and spirit. And you don't even – it's very hard for people to understand uh, the trauma, the amount of trauma. You know, if you've got – a young woman that's been raped 40 times a day for three years. Right. The, the, what is done to their, you know, God created us body, soul, and spirit. And um, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. So we're tripartite beings, and all of that is so damaged. Right. And um, even if a girl or a child or a man comes out, and, and say they even get uh, saved the next moment, sure. and they love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, but they the love wounds. God with all their broken heart, all their yes. wounded soul, and all their tormented mind. Yes. And so you've got to help that to be reshaped, and that is a process. Um, I say that to people, you know, when I came to Christ with my wounded soul, my spirit was born again immediately, no issue, uh, but the same wounds I had, before I said the sinner's prayer were the same words I carried when I said amen. And there was a process um, of restoration. I think sometimes we don't allow for that. And if uh, we did, we would see a lot more people come through to wholeness. And so we see, of course, there's uh, the physical care. We work with the medical profession, Mm -hmm. with hospitals, wherever we are, because there's often been incredible damage. Many many of the young women won't short of a miracle won't be able to bear a child you know right. there's a lot of damage done there um so there's physical damage the em- the emotional trauma uh so there's ongoing Counseling. help there very much so we have great trauma um specialists that we work with the best of the best in their field and um i find you know when someone is a very strong believer and has a great foundation in the word as well as their skill in what they do you see results a yes. lot more often you oh, really yeah. do and i think um 
you know, I've only been in this for 10 years, but certainly within 10 years in what we've measured thus far, why we see, and people are start. I mean, you know, secular organisations are like, wow, you guys, we have like a 95% right, success asking, rate. How did you yeah, do that? And they're like less than 5% and we're like 95%. Right. And you go, well, let me tell you. And, um, <laughs> And so there is that side is huge and we have a process of restoration. So for some people and in some countries, and again, we have just different models in every country. Sure. So in some countries, uh, we work with families where children um, come into and we work ongoing with them. But rather than going into an adoption, into a sort of a uh, a home system, um, they go into families. And so we work um, extensively there. And the more often you can put children into a good family mm-hmm. with all the resources that they need, Mm -hmm. uh, the healthier that is. In other models in Europe, we have for older um, girls, perhaps between 18 to 25, we have different group homes and an aftercare system of short term and then longer term, up to two years. Um, and then as they build new habits, as they, oh, and very much so. new and, relationships and skills, because the big thing is life skills. Yes. Life skills is a huge thing because many of them have never been taught even basic life skills and then job skills. Exactly. I love in Bulgaria, we're starting whole factories. Um, of, we have a Liberty, it's called Liberty, and um, it, it is a for profit business where we are teaching them to make scarves. I mean, there's whole different enterprises, but social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is exciting to me because the more of that we can do, because we're talking about nations with abject poverty. So if you can empower um, these survivors to come out and then have ongoing means of uh, finance and resource. And get to keep the money. And that keep the waiting. money, then right. they're a whole lot less likely to be re-trafficked. A lot of this is a systemic cycle. Yes. Um, you go back, a lot of their families won't take them back because of the shame. Even if they were the ones that sold them, I'm finding that we can't – there's many cases that the families will not take. There's certain Southeast Asian countries where what happened with China had the one-child policy, you know, for mm-hmm. all those years. Yes. And many young women were killed during that time yes. because, you know, if it was a boy, uh, they survived. Well, what happens in a lot of these Southeast Asian countries now, a lot of the boys have grown up in China and what have we found? There's an absence of women because of the one-child policy, so now they want women. So they're trafficking, I mean, by the hundreds of thousands Hmm. of women. So we're working with certain countries. So is it like a mail-order bride kind of thing? Yes, yes, very much. Sort of that, a mail-order woman, period, yes. But yes, it's the same kind of system, but they would just bring in train loads or truck loads and then just disperse them out to the families that want them. Because I I saw uh, another form of... uh, Slavery is to actually be married to somebody, but you're 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 basically doing all the menial work with no pay. Oh, very much. So you're like a domestic and servant. Yes. Yes, you're a domestic servant. Basically. That's what you are. You're a domestic servant and a sex slave, and yes. it was done against your will. Your family might have sold you through a mail order right. service, right. and um, I mean, I, that is everywhere. That is here, and that is in um. Uh, loads of nations in the world and we're constantly we've got teams working on um, back ends of uh, the internet and working with organizations like Facebook extensively going how can we expose these kind of uh, sh- scams that are set up really they're just a, a glorified system of trafficking and so you end up with women more often than not that are just the victims of domestic servitude or mm. a, a a legal, legally sanctioned form of sex trafficking, basically. That's really what it comes down to. So um, 
And a trafficker will come up with the most ingenious methods of using the law to their advantage. Sure, it's a business proposition. There it is. And I still, you know, no wonder Scripture says, and we were talking about this in the break, that um, that money is the the love of money is right. the root of all evil. Because what drives this, even more than a hatred for people, or even more than misogyny or patriarchy or whatever term you want to put on it, what drives it is right. the love of money, right. and that is the root of the evil that uh, continues to. To just perpetuate this this whole system, and it just it is on every continent. We have offices in every continent um, on Earth, and just when I think I've seen it all, you see, there's so- a new. I mean, my husband will come to me and go, Chris, we've just got a victim, and this is what, ha-, and I'm like. I can't. Who stays up at night and works this stuff out on how to do this? Because it is shocking. It is tragic. It's it evil. is gut wrenching. It is evil, and that's the nature of evil. So, if anyone wants to tell you that, you know, when I really read Revelations and there's really no evil in the world, I'm like, come and work with me for a day, and I'll help you understand that evil exists on the earth today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. I, I I've always felt that uh, sin and evil is one of the best apologetics there is Absolutely. for the Bible because the Bible tells us about sin and evil. Absolutely. And if if you can't see sin and evil in this world, I don't know what to do for you. This world absolutely needs a savior. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what above everything. If we needed more entertainment, we'd have an entertainer. We we <laughs> needed saving, so God sent us a savior. And I'm I, m- me first and foremost. But ten years on in this work, um, and the reason I think when people again the flip side, Bill, people come and look at our offices. You know, uh, we have fourteen offices around the world, and our staff is still faith filled and joy filled and hope filled. And I know that is as much a testimony to law enforcement and governments because, of course, we work you know, sure. across every sector. And they're like, you have such a low turnover of staff. Your staff actually are full of joy and hope and you have success. And again, it is a great way to have testimony, uh, to be to testify to the fact that, mm. um, you know, truly the joy of the Lord is our strength, that you can have hope even in the midst of darkness when you know the light and you can bring and penetrate light in the darkness. I don't need to uh, lose hope. Jesus is the hope we have as an anchor for our soul. And that I think to do this kind of work for as long as we have and continue to have faith and hope and joy, um, you truly do become a prisoner of hope in that sense. And that I think ultimately that's where the eternal hope comes in, that I know this isn't the end of the story and for every one victim we see rescued there is great hope but jesus is coming back and there is redemption coming and there is an ultimate hope and i think that is what drives us and that doesn't make me stop and not want to do good works on the earth that's actually quite the contrary it gets me up every day with a spring in my step and a smile on my face going come on um we've got we we, we can just take this light into the darkness and we can help one person today and i keep doing it for the one i don't get overwhelmed mm. by the 40 million it's right. like you know people go chris are you really making a difference i'm like let me take you in and meet one of my survivors and tell me tell me if it makes a difference for them and that's enough to get me out of bed today well i love that uh, focus on the one i i, I like to think uh, grace is basically practiced at the retail level okay Beautiful. and we have a modern day pentecost going on around the world uh, not so much here in the United States, but in South America, Africa, and Asia. People are coming to faith so quickly that uh, it, it, it's almost a, pro- a problem, if, if I can put it that way. So God's got his people on the way, and and he's, he's plucking people out of darkness into light. But how does that church – 
I mean, I just think of these millions of, of, of new believers and these, these hundreds of thousands of new churches, many of them small churches, yes. springing up just by the Spirit of God. How do we help them become aware of this, and then how do, what do they do? How do they intervene? Yeah, I think it's great. Um, and, and again, you know, I think some people have seen the movie Taken and think, I've got a particular set of skills, get me on a plane, I want to go over right. it yes. and utilize them. <laughs> I, I th- here is what I, I truly believe, that um, there are organizations like us and our dear friends, IJM, that are doing brilliant work globally um, yes. around this. So, IJM, I, International Justice Yes, Mission. International yeah. Justice, and Gary Haugen, and yes. those guys are dear friends yeah, of ours, and uh, great guys. And so I think one of the first things that is the most helpful is get uh, or contact organizations like ours that are out there and doing it that have got credibility with governments because we're not going to just stop this by thinking i'm going to go and do a raid and i'm yes, going to i mean right. we actually don't need that what we need is saying okay um some people need to be better educated and better resourced and both ijm and us have got great resources and great tools to say we can help you to help train your people on being aware of this issue. But then one of the best things you can do as a local church is partner with organizations like us that have got um, professionals, incredible people that have already built the relationships that need to be built, that are already down the road in this field because together we are better. And um, you can provide resources that we haven't got. We can provide expertise that you haven't got. So there so, is some expertise needed. Some. If we're going to end this, truly, uh, yes, a lot. And You're I saying, think, in a sense, you know, do not try this at home. Yeah, Look, I, I very much do because I think amateurs. it could do more damage. Number one, it's it, it, if when we're talking about true, true, true anti-trafficking work, it is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. There is a danger. Um, we can't be ignorant of that, and so um, it is important to, you know, if if I was going to have to have surgery, I had thyroid cancer a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, I had a lot of really well-meaning people and I was happy for them to pray for me, but I only wanted um, a cancer specialist and a surgeon to operate on me. And so my thing is, it's the same with this. I want everyone to pray for us and then we need some specialists to go in and do the work that needs to be done. And so I think the more we realize that we're one body, many part, and God has raised us up and anointed us to each do certain things, I think the more we awaken to that, the more effective we would be on the earth because we've got a lot of really great well-meaning, good-hearted people, but alone you can only do so much together. We can actually make a, a huge difference. And wisdom, wisdom is very important because it takes every sector. It does take the government sector, it takes the not-for-profit sector, but it takes the education. I mean, we want to do preventative work in schools, in institutions. We want to work with the government. Law enforcement is a huge uh, thing we need to work with. We work, we're launching a campaign here in North America, and it's already in Europe and Asia, called Can You See Me, which in every airport, um, every train station, everywhere there's mass transport, um, where they have video screens, uh, there is short three and four minute movies that are um, that we've produced specific to every continent. Uh, and again, we've had to go through governments and to get all this approved and shown. And so it's it helps you to identify the victims of trafficking. So we're putting it out there on billboards, on um, screens, public service television, on helping to educate people that have no idea of, wow, okay, Can You See Me is a program of um, how a victim can be right in your midst and then this will show you, wow, can you see them? This is how you can identify them. And because of a lot of that programming and educating uh, 
people in airports and people that work in airports and air yes. hostesses and yes. you know we have had many people rescued um, out of that and uh, been identified on airplanes been identified in airports been identified at train stations bus stations and people that before would had no idea that this could be a potential victim we're helping people to identify them in their workplace uh, here in America um, it is amazing because it's trafficking here in America is hidden in plain sight. I was going to say. And so we need people to um, – we have three officers here in North America and we have aftercare. We work with survivors. It is. It would shock people to see how prevalent it is in this nation as well. But it's hidden in plain sight right in front of us. And so our job is to help awaken people. Can you see them? Like we want you – because if we're all working together, we can become – far more alert. I think most people think if I want to be involved and I want to help, do I start a shelter? Well, the goal is we're trying not to start a lot of them because we want to give people effective pathways to be reintegrated. And most victims, and even here in America, um, they want a life. They want a life. They don't want to go into uh, you know organised institutional care, and especially when they're 18, 19, 20, right. um, they want to be trained to have a job and to be healed. So that's what we do is we have uh, short-term transition places, but in it all, um, we're helping them get necessary education and skills so that they can have a life and be contributors. Everyone wants to be that. They want to. They don't want to be known. They don't even want their primary identity, which is why you don't often see me go. He's a survivor. Now we have some. Yeah, they're on staff right. because they don't want that uh, to be their primary we're back identity. To shame, yeah, right? Totally. So if somebody wanted to stick a toe in the, in the water, mm-hmm. as it were, and and this their heart is stirring in them. Do you have volunteer opportunities or other opportunities Absolutely. with A21? Tell yes, us about Yes, we that. have great volunteer opportunities at every level, from whether you, um, uh, you know, you want to be involved uh, in the legal side or the psychology side, or you've got a great heart and you think, I don't really have a lot of skills, but I've got a very willing heart um, mm-hmm. to that level of administrative skills. But if you go to a21.org, there is a volunteer application form and we will help you with all of that. For those also, there's 21 things on our website that you don't even need money for that if this conversation has stimulated and you go, I want to do something today. You can go and we will show you how to write a letter to your congressperson, how you can support something. So it's all there, a21.org. Good. Well, I want to encourage our listeners and, and visitors to uh, to go to that website. And, uh, Christine, this, is, uh, this has been so helpful for you to kind of illumine us as to this huge problem. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I know that you believe we have a huge God. Yes, in fact, we do. an infinite God. And this task is beyond anything that any one of us has the means of, of dealing with. Absolutely. But I, and I'm with you that, you know, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we can ever ask, hope, or think according to that power that works in us. And so I believe that what is impossible with man, Jesus said at first, is possible with God. And with God, all things are possible and nothing is impossible. That's why I believe that we can abolish slavery everywhere forever. We have to believe that, and then we also have to act on that. We have Very to trust so. God for that. And uh, we've had a woman address this with us today, and she is bringing us back to a woman who spoke to her son in Proverbs 31, 9 and 10. King Lemuel had a mother who said, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the sight of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge rightly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's our call. That's our task. That that is what the Word of God has called us to. Christine, thank you for modeling that for us. And uh, come back and, and visit us on our next podcast at the table.
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Thank you.